Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. In the earliest twinklings of civilization, the earliest archaeological evidence of fermented drinks points to evidence that brewers and winemakers have flavored beverages with herbs, resins, honeys, meats, fruits, spices, and barks for many thousands of years. Figs and honey helped jumpstart fermentations in ancient Egyptian amphora, and chamomile sometimes flavored wine. In ancient Greece, the Retsina tradition came from when resins coated the inside of clay pots and acted as both sealant and preservative. Move west across the Mediterranean to ancient Rome, and you'll find some of the earliest doctors worked with infused wines as medicines and salves, calling them theriacs. The best ones took years to mature and were made from exotic ingredients, like viper meat and opium. They were pretty pricey sips too, only for the rich. And these theriacs enjoyed popularity among the likes of Emperor Nero and Marcus Aurelius. Wine additives served practical purposes in the ancient world. Most helped preserve wine on long journeys, and tacky substances like beeswax and resin could efficiently seal containers. For early doctors, infusions were medicinal conduits to ensure a patient received many healing essences in one serving. Intensely flavored wine additives were once integral and quotidian parts of the wine business. Today, additives sneak in as supposedly invisible adjusters, added to maintain the integrity of the original wine without altering its taste to varying degrees of actual success. Today's additives are largely overlooked in order not to muddy wine's identity as a pure substance. They are added, usually, with the specific purpose of not interfering with the flavor of the wine. And then there's vermouth. Often flavored with wormwood and definitely flavored with other botanicals of choice, vermouth can be so many different things. It may express as sweet or dry as any color of wine, and the flavor spectrum has infinite permutations. Though wormwood has been used in wines across many cultures for many centuries, vermouth as we know it really gets its foothold in the 19th century 
in the area where France and Italy meet. In the mid-1800s, this region was politically united as the Kingdom of Sardinia, so you'd expect to find some continuity among popular beverages throughout the kingdom. Here, you'll also find lots of delicious and aromatic things growing at the bases of the Alps, so it's only natural that these treats found themselves harvested to release their essences in the local wine. By the 1890s, vermouth enjoyed a liberating period where it could be consumed alongside of wine, no apologies. It belonged at the table as much as a cocktail or champagne. Today you'd be hard-pressed to find a wine list that lists vermouths alongside similar regional wines that aren't aromatized. We don't even think of vermouth as wine anymore. Vermouths will often have their own section, and it will usually not be on the wine list at all, instead finding a home behind the bar in a cocktail list. As the gin of wine, vermouth is sort of like a bottled cocktail. It's a full sensory experience, ready to be consumed without any mixing or shaking. But unlike a cocktail, there's no strict pretense. The rules are fluid. You don't get judged for adding ice or garnishes. You won't get judged for mixing it with other bar staples. And you won't get judged for cooking with it. It's a beverage that invites you to engage with it on many different levels, from profound to limbic. And you can change your approach to it without even thinking about it. Vermouths also challenge your tasting faculties in a unique way. If every botanical expresses the larger sense of the main subregion along with the wine, a vermouth can sort of be a snapshot of meta-terroir. Some wines attempt to do this, but a vermouth can go beyond wines that attempt meta-terroir. For example, like Marcel Dice's Engelgarten, aimed at expressing a site through co-planted varieties all intermingled together or great Bordeaux blends that are co-fermented, or the old Zinfandel-predominant field blends you can find in California. Expressing a terroir by mixing the different genetics of grape varieties is something that a few people are playing around with. But instead of expressing a place by mixing different kinds of grapes, a vermouth made from all local ingredients can capture the sense of land across plant species. But it doesn't have to. It can be so many things. Not only does the vermouth maker have an unbridled environment in which to creatively approach the product, the consumers have equally unbridled expectations as to how and in what capacity we may choose to enjoy it. Vermouth is like the wild, wild west of wine. Keep listening to hear more from one vermouth maker who is staking her claim in the world of vermouth. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com 
Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Bianca Moralia of Uncouth Vermouth back on the show. Hello, how are you? Doing well, thank you. How are you doing? Very nice to see you. It's good to be here. So it was a couple of years ago that you were here. I was going to look it up and then I didn't. <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you. It was a J month in 2013, I think June or July, something wow. like that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't look it up that much, but you know. So The beginning after the hurricane. Yeah, I guess that was the reset. The rebound spring, yeah. You've been now doing your uncouth for a bit, and how's it come along for you? It's going very well. I'm growing organically as I planned. I still haven't taken on any investors and just focusing on how to maintain quality and not compromise practices and still scale up. And why did you make that choice? Because I feel like you would have had some offers to get big quite fast if you wanted to, because it sort of caught on. That's true. I do. I still get offers regularly, but the problem is I don't really know. And this isn't like an ego thing, but I don't really know that I could teach somebody else how to do it when I still am figuring out what my style is. You know, it's not the sort of thing where I can hand a recipe over to a co-packer and I would have absolutely no interest in taking on an investor and, and then effectively no longer working for myself. Oh, I see. So the whole reason that you went out to do it is that you wanted to work for yourself and then why yeah. run back into working for someone else? Yeah, if it's just for money. I think that, you know, when you're young and, and you stay focused and you give a shit every day, that money will accumulate. But in terms of the vermouth market, I feel like it's changed a lot since we spoke last time. Oh, yes. Two, three years ago, hardly anybody gave a shit about vermouth at all. And now you see, you know, restaurants with aperitif sections on their menus. You know, it's really remarkable seeing all over the country. It's not just in New York, as you would expect. It's also, you know, in San Francisco. It's in Seattle, Atlanta, you know, some cities, Asheville, some cities that you wouldn't necessarily consider super hip and in the booze loop or even have access to, you know, a lot of cool stuff that really makes like a great menu. And you'd be surprised what people are getting their hands on all over the place now. So what's driving that change? First of all, accessibility. Like there used to really only be a handful of importers and distributors, you know, household ponds being the biggest, I think, for those categories. And I think that now people all over the world are seeing that no matter how small their, you know, brand or whatever you want to call it is that they can still be worldly. So I think, and there are more and more importers who are totally into it. And so there are still more secrets to uncover. And, you know, a lot of people like to say that there are no more secrets, but it's just not true. I mean, there are so many tiny operations going on, you know, like the Wilco song says, the best bands have never been signed. You still feel like the Vermouth thing could get bigger than it already is. Oh, absolutely. I think that it's still growing, and now we have actual access to real information about vermouth, whereas most of it was just marketing materials, not actually historical account of how everything went down. Do you think that end users are really driving growth in the vermouth category, or do you think it's really the restaurant and retail buyers that are driving growth? I think it's the end user. 
And also you have people who then get really excited and want to collect all kinds of shit. You know, it's like a a whiskey drinker isn't just going to have one kind of whiskey at home. And so people get really involved. And I was talking to actually some of my buddies at Red Hook Winery yesterday about how, you know, like a lot of experiences in our lives revolve around collecting things like baseball cards. Facebook, we're like collecting friends like baseball cards. Importers and distributors are collecting brands like fucking baseball cards. You know, it's just really crazy. And so I think that this is also like part of that where people like see new things and they get interested in it and they get hooked and then they want to know everything about it and, you know, try as many different possible varieties as they can. Do you think that there's something in terms of the product that's not the collectability part that's driving consumer interest? Like, is there something Absolutely. in the, the taste? I, I think that I'm the first person to say drink it on its own and people are really turning to low octane cocktails. And so when they make drinks at home, generally speaking, people aren't looking to get clobbered like they're out, you know, at a club on a Saturday night or whatever the kids are doing these days. But people who are drinking at home, generally, you know, the intimidation of an entire bottle isn't maybe what they're looking for on a Tuesday night. So they can have a beverage that feels sophisticated and different, but at the same time, they don't get hammered. Yeah. And I think that that's happy hour culture, too. You know, that's happy hour in a nutshell. It's being able to have a few drinks and still go get dinner and maybe have another drink after dinner and not be completely clobbered. And what about production side? Uh, Well, I started with three, I guess, and now I have 10. And I have Amari batches in barrel and open air vinegary going as well, and a lot of other weird projects that will be released over time. So did you see a lot of parallels with Amari and Vermouth, or did it seem like two very different things? I had never looked up, you know, a Vermouth recipe online or an Amaro recipe online. And so when I approached them, I, you know, I approached them like I, you know, like I do with Vermouth. It's like, okay, what's in season? What can I do? And I really wanted to center uh, these Amari batches around local Cardoon. And Cardamaro is a classic example of a Cardoon-based digestif, which is an ancient artichoke. So all of the plants that go into that are just in season at the same time, which is like the very end of the summer and kind of going into autumn. And so that's what's available. And I treated them completely differently. First of all, the Amari batches are in oak which is a big first for me. And I used highly, highly unorthodox, but I used Kings County Distillery and Van Brunt Stillhouse five-gallon bourbon barrels. So freshly emptied bourbon and a couple of rye barrels as well. And so in lieu of sweetener, I used sweet spirit kissed barrel to age them in. They've been going for over a year and they keep getting better and better. And and now I have the second series of batches that are going and I'm getting ready to incorporate them into a start of a Solera system. Oh, that's interesting. So completely different from vermouth production, but that's because of my own approach. And so how has it changed over time in the barrel? What becomes more or less apparent? It's very soft and I was going to hate myself for saying that, but I think that that's a different word than smooth, if you get what I mean. It's so not boozy at all. And it's very approachable. I think it's dangerously approachable, but the alcohol level is really nice because, you know, over time in a barrel, the alcohol level is going to go down, you know, and you lose volume, which is a bummer and something that I had not previously experienced having everything in airtight stainless steel. 
So that's a big difference for me too, is really learning that, okay, this costs like way more to make because you're losing so much money in this ridiculous process that I'm like forcing myself through. And the other thing about it is it's much more aromatic, but definitely, you know, maple honeyed, you know, for me despising tasting notes, but that's probably the best way that I can describe it. It doesn't taste raw or dry like a lot of my vermouths do. It's very much like a digestif. So when you choose autumnal flavors that are in season together, do they just naturally go together or did you find things were canceling each other out or that things need to be brought forward more? It depends. There are some things that definitely really don't work together at all. Lovage and amaranth, for instance, keep those fuckers apart. They hate each other. They really, it's just the most disgusting thing I've ever smelled next to my seaweed vermouth. That was a really failed experiment. But it's good to mess up. But generally speaking, I have learned to smell what's going to happen. You can kind of even like chew (laughs) on shit to see like the bitterness that it's going to give you, you know. And so I really try to eat all of my ingredients when they first come in as ridiculous as that sounds but that's the first step to everything that either I harvest or I bring in from Blooming Hill Farm is I eat it and then kind of take it from there well that's kind of amazing so you engage with the ingredient Mm -hmm. before it's in liquid yeah because even every year you know or for something that's harvested multiple times a year it's going to be different so you know I may want to adjust how much I'm using. Are those radical shifts? This past year, 2015 harvest, was probably the most aromatic I've experienced since I've been working with foraging plants in New York. Definitely by far the most aromatic. And an absolute gorgeous year for fruit all around. A lot of farms that generally, you know, will give in to fungicides and things didn't need to. And so that was a really beautiful gift. What do you think caused that aromatic complexity? I think that it's because we had such a freezing cold winter last year. I think that having a super, super cold winter kind of reset everything, and it seemed to be a pretty strong harvest for everybody. So is it like grapes and that there's a ripening curve on something like cardoon or a certain kind of berry? I mean... Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just as sensitive. So you really have to decide, okay, I'm going to pick it now because this is the aspect of that (laughs) thing that I want. So I always say that my life is ruled by nature, and it truly, truly is, except sometimes when you're still a one-person operation, shit's going down, and and I miss out. And it was a bummer last year for raspberries. That was raspberries for me. I picked as many as I could on my own farm, and then I just had no time to go out and spend. I mean, it's a really, really time-consuming task. Uh, When you think about it, it sounds like very mystical and enchanted and shit, but it's, you know, it's a hard, it takes stamina and it takes a lot, a lot of hours to get enough. And so I just didn't have time to get back out there to get enough of them. And so I regrettably did not make my wild raspberry vermouth this year. But Which is a popular one, right? It is. It is. Um, you know, and I hadn't made it for two years. So it was like especially a bummer. But, you know, so it goes. Like I, I made a cherry vermouth later that month. And it's one of my favorite things that I've ever made. So I feel good about that. And, you know, it, it's a bummer, but I'm not going to kill myself over it. But in terms of like you could pick it now or you could pick it 10 days earlier and it's not desiccated yet and it's not rotting. Uh-huh. I see what you're saying. Yeah. 
Does that affect the uh-huh, vermouth? Yep. And everything affects everything. You know, one of my favorite stories is actually not my story. It's my friend Yoni Rubino's story from Never Sink Spirits, and they make local apple brandy in Port Chester. And he's really awesome. And he, you know, got to meet Reisbauer and he tasted his apple brandy and he could tell that the apples had not only rested, but were moved far from their original location before fermentation. Wow, that's uh, almost unbelievable to me. That It's that, like the coolest. That you can taste distance. Should I have ever heard. Well, it kind of. It makes sense to me in a yeast aspect because if you're not picking apples and making cider at your orchard site and you drive your apples far away, then you're going to have to add yeast in order to get a fermentation going. So I think that maybe that was a good indicator. Somebody who ferments their cider or whatever you call it before you're distilling it, somebody on their own orchard isn't going to add yeast. Interesting. That's my best guess. We got to follow up on that. You can actually taste for picking time of a fruit. I mean, I know it's obvious in the wine thing. But yeah. I, for me, it's obvious in, in everybody's aperitifs now. Like, you know, the more and more aperitifs I taste that other people make, I can tell if it's an extract or a real plant. And I can tell, like, whether it was extracted in high-proof alcohol or in the wine. Or if it was just in, like a pelletized, like, hint of something that it used to be in nature a thousand years ago is basically what that smells like to me. So yeah, so it's kind of fun. Like I feel like I'm learning through my own experiments what other people are doing and what works for other people versus what works for me. So say you pick it, say it's a cardoon. Is there anything you do before you put it in liquid? Do you do anything to preserve it or to transform it? All I do is wash it very carefully with very, very thick gloves on because it has spiky shit all over it and it hurts. And then I basically throw it onto my drying racks and uh, and very, very carefully rotate it. But it's it's really thorny. It's not fun to handle it at all. And I'm sure that the dudes who are picking it are tough as fuck. And what about some of the other ingredients? How do you handle different things that come in? Uh, Well, it depends on what it is, you know. It depends on whether or not I want to use every part of the plant. For some things, I can't use the whole plant because some parts of plants are poisonous and not edible. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't recognize. Or, for instance, they assume if something is, like, aromatic, that it must be edible. And, you know, that's not the case. Classic example, you know, would be rhubarb for me. So I make a rhubarb vermouth in mid-June. And the first thing I do, you know, with gloves on is pull everything that resembles part of the leaf off because the leaves contain a high content of oxalic acid, which is really, really terrible for you. It's absolutely toxic. Like, do not eat these. Um, You can cook them for a very long time and then eat them. But I personally, on that front, don't think that the juice is worth the squeeze. Uh, Whereas the rhubarb stalk is one of the most amazing things I've ever, you know, smelled and tasted. So uh, ditch the leaves on rhubarb is a good example of me handling one plant differently than others. You know, as far as like beets go, because I work with those For some weird reason, I will peel them because otherwise dropping them in with peels, like all you taste is absolute dirt, you know, and I I know that a lot of people love to taste the dirt in their wines, but believe me, this is an extreme example that nobody wants. 
Does this imply that there's a lot of batches that you make as experiments and they just don't taste that good? And you're like, no. Every batch is an experiment. The ones that make it um, out to the consumer are the ones that I am personally impressed with. So that's basically like low cost of ingredients and you can make that happen? No, I think that that is just a part of playing the long game and being willing to take a chance on an idea and it can always go into the vinegary. Right, right. <laughs> byproducts. Byproducts are the backup plan. <laughs> if it's different every year and the ripening time is different every year, that must affect your ability to codify a recipe. Absolutely. I always say that I'm a plant composer, that I, I don't make formulas. And, you know, I equate it to the reason why doctors can't prescribe tea because you can't actually structure a dose. And so, you know, it's unless I was creating tinctures, you know, botanical tinctures or extracts or, you know, whatever, and approaching it that way, you know, and just having everything being like a test tube baby you know, unless I went to that extreme, like I really just think all of that is kind of a waste of my time as far as measurement is concerned. So it's more about feel every time. Every like time. Feel and taste. Yeah. And you probably start to get a sense of when you're handling something, how it's going to taste because it looks like this. Yeah. And I know when it's been dried too long because I use everything freshly dried and I know when it needs to dry longer because it's going to leach out like way too much bitter or more bitter than I you know, want leaching out. And I'm a firm believer that you only learn when you fuck up. And are all the vermouths along with the Amaro, are they made in that idea of it blooms together, it goes together? Absolutely. Yep. If I were a smart business owner, I would make one, maybe two things. I would make as much of it as possible once a year. And that would be, you know, my job. And then the rest of the year, I would be traveling around, kissing babies and, selling like crazy but you know that's just not the life that I want like the whole point of this is that I'm getting to know the plants and I'm getting to know the land and on a much deeper level than when I ever worked in a vineyard because you know as much as I am like obsessed with vineyards and you know anybody who dares to have a heart attack every day enough to manage them I think that it's just much more manipulated no matter what, whether it be biodynamic, whether it be, you know, natural, sustainable, whatever, nothing beats what's just happening in nature, you know, year after year and what changes year after year and what cool new thing that I learn about that I never knew about or something that I get to teach people about that they had never heard of before, you know, and I, I just think that it's a much bigger connection for me than it is a job. I love, you know, being out in the woods. I love bottling. I, you know, I love it. Like I love every aspect of the job. There isn't any part of the job that, you know, I would trade. I'm working with a couple of contract sales reps now, which is a really big step for me. And it's teaching me a big lesson. And, you know, it's kind of like bringing your kid to preschool and hoping everyone thinks that she's cute, you know, or at least like as cute as you think she is. It's a little terrifying having, you know, other people out there like, you know, repping my soul. But at the same time, it's teaching me really big lessons in how great it is to be focusing so much more on the farm and foraging and just making more vermouth. But at the same time, ingredients must have different costs associated with them. I Absolutely. Would, yeah. yeah, definitely. Some shit is quite honestly unaffordable even on a wholesale 
level, but you know, I mean, I'm not going to say that my vermouth is the most affordable either. And it's a result of that for sure. But at the same time, like I didn't set out to make a vermouth that, you know, I could just make one consistent thing, you know, that appeals to the masses. I set out to truly experiment with batch variation and use the highest quality possible ingredients that I can get my hands on in this region. And so that's what I want to work with. And talking about ingredients, you've added into the mix an ownership of your own farm since we spoke last. Yeah. It's been terrifying pipes burst in your basement. It's totally the money pit. (laughs) Like watch the money pit if you want to buy a 200-year-old farmhouse in upstate New York. Watch the fucking money pit. It It really is like my basement stairs almost killed me. You know, my house is literally being held up by tree trunks which is so cool. And like you can't stand up totally straight, but you can like sit on the sofa and have people just serve you things. So that's a plus. Uh, That's what I do at my own home. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, you know, I, I haven't planted too, too many things. I'm actually this weekend having a second meeting with my edible plant landscape architect, which I think sounds like the most fabulous job I've ever heard of. And she seems really inspirational and insightful and another I word uh, for a lovely professional lady. And so we're going to meet up and, you know, walk around the land and really firmly discuss what we can do. Do you find that certain things have to grow next to each other or cannot grow next to each other that you might like to have blooming at the same time? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, that's co-planting. That's by definition, what co-planting is, you know, which is a huge, huge part of permaculture, basically what you're looking to do, which is like the basic heart of biodynamics, is you're looking to create a really happy and self-sufficient ecosystem. You know, for instance, if you are looking to avoid aphids, you should plant a lot of basil is a good pro tip for people even in apartments like you know even if you bring home like a pepper plant from the farmers market you'll find that you know the next day you have like aphids all over every one of your apartment plants um, but really that's what you're looking to do you're looking to invite you know really good bugs and disgust <laughs> to the point where like they won't even enter you know your subculture the bugs that you want staying away But are there certain things you're like, man, it's so hard to get such product from somebody else. I need to plant it for myself. It's a rare... Oh, story of my life. Yeah. Absolutely. I, you know, I'm working with, I guess, like somewhere around 200 edible plants now growing in New York year round, um, which is so awesome. But uh, there are like a hundred more, of course, that I want to be working with that I think will grow really well here based on just a bunch of homework um, and also meeting some people, for instance, D&J Organics, who grow the ginger that I source for my pear ginger vermouth. You know, it's a tropical plant and they have this awesome system where you dig four feet down and you heat and humidity control that shit and they have like 147 plants. I'm looking at what they're doing and it makes me really want to plant like chancona and other exotics that are hardier exotics that might be able to survive if it gets a little cold, but will really thrive in a greenhouse environment. Presumably there's things that you would like to plant, but it's just an inhospitable landscape to doing that outside of the greenhouse. Yeah, I'm, it's upstate New York. It's not like I can have vanilla orchids. <laughs> there are just a lot of things I'm going to have to never have. Uh, the only way that I can satiate or scratch that itch is 
a little project that I'm doing where I'm making small batches of vermouth with, you know, winemakers and distillers in different regions of the world so that I get to forage, you know, their land and areas surrounding them and just make like one-offs using ingredients that grow naturally in their environments. And I think that's really my only option for that kind of fix. You know, it's interesting to me because I feel like in an earlier era, like turn of the century, you know, 1900, people were attracted by the idea of exotic ingredients from faraway places. Being, oh, yeah. You know, part of their fernet or part of their amaro or possibly part of their vermouth. Definitely part of their vermouth. Gentian and orange peel. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think in that respect, there aren't very many people doing, you know, my approach, particularly the sweeteners. Like, I believe that I'm still currently the only buddy out there commercially who doesn't use sweeteners at all. And I think that like sweeteners, once sugar, <laughs> you know, hit uh, the trade route, I think that all fucking bets were off, you know, we're like, let's get our sugar on. And now it's just like a huge, huge part of our culture, even though the closest place to get sugar is Louisiana, you know, and you can, you can, you can get U.S. grown uh, sugar for that matter. But, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with where these ingredients are being sourced because you can source high quality stuff exotically and there are ways that you can kind of cut down on the shipping you know or get it on like a bigger truck to cut down the carbon footprint if you are somebody who gives a shit about that stuff there are avenues where you can go something that is more along the lines of the carpano era method of vermouth which i think is what everybody else is doing basically still wanting to source ingredients exotically so within your own range, have you seen a different engagement with fruitier versus bitter? Did certain types of people gravitate towards one or the other or certain types of uses or is it pretty consistent? Most people who say they like bitter is because they drink bitter things that have a lot of sugar in them, <laughs> I've found. Uh, you know, for instance, most, you know, super, super bitter IPAs are very malty. And so that makes the beer really sweet and a lot easier to drink and contrast the bitterness. And the same thing goes for, you know, many aperitifs. Uh, aperitivo like Campari, you know, for instance, is gentian and bitter orange and sugar <laughs> um, and NGS. And, and so people, you know, they're like, oh, I, this is a drinking bitter, and it absolutely is. But it's a highly sweetened drinking bitter that makes it really easy to drink. And so that's actually kind of changed our perception of what bitter is probably mm -hmm. over a long period of time. Yeah. So when you deal with something that's really bitter, how do you approach it? It depends. If it's something like burdock root, I just kind of use it slightly more sparingly, you know, than I would maybe some other roots or barks. But it goes with the whole thing all over again is I eat it <laughs> and I see what it's putting out and kind of like make a judgment call of how much I think that I should be using in order to achieve the balance I'm looking for. So after a few years of doing that, have you realized things about your own palate and what you tend to prefer? Yes. The more and more I do this, the less and less of a tolerance I have for sweet drinks overall. It's crazy. Uh, I, you know, I used to be okay with something. I, you know, I would completely leave it up to the bartender and I was never the person to be like, can you make this less sweet? And now I am completely that asshole. I'm like, is it sweet though? I am that person. Yeah. I feel like I, I made that move as well. 
Yeah, and I don't believe you when you tell me that it's not. Or if you right. tell me, oh, there's just a little bit of simple in it, it's like the most anger-inducing statement you can say to me in my experience, you know, sitting on the other end of the bar from you, you know, saying that it has a little bit of simple. Sometimes I think that that move from cocktail makers of always using the sweetness as a crutch has pushed people into drinking brown spirits neat. Sure. Because you're like, okay, well, you know what's not going to have any sweetness in it besides the oak and whatever is me just pouring this bourbon into this glass. Yeah. And I think that that's what gave, you know, martinis a really bad name is because people were using these designatedly dry vermouths that had been sitting open on a fucking, you know, back bar for God knows how long and then putting half as much, you know, into the cocktail as the gin and people are like, oh, I want less and less vermouth. Well, obviously, like, because you're not giving them a dry martini because your dry vermouth has sugar in it because that's, you know, just what American people wanted. You know, they want to be told that it's dry even though there's sugar in it, right? Isn't that like the classic, I want a full-bodied Pinot Noir kind of thing? And so, you know, it got to the point where they're like, okay, no, I really just want a chilled shot of gin. And I don't necessarily blame them. Right. And we saw that whole era where people were like, I don't add vermouth to my martinis. I just do vodka. Right, right. And it's chilled vodka. Yeah. But I think one of the things that people said at the time was that those products were being distilled cleaner and that they were less harsh. And so they didn't need the softening of vermouth. I mean, what would you say about that? That is actually a direct result of really good marketing. I mean, that's some brand ambassador saying to every bartender she meets that, you know, this is so delicious that you can just drink it on its own, which is exactly what I tell people about my fucking vermouth, you know, so I can't blame them. But I do make it so it tastes delicious on its own. And I truly hope that every person who creates something that we're meant to ingest, you know, makes it delicious <laughs> on its own, you know, otherwise, like, why even put it in a cocktail? But I think that that is a growing culture still is people and also ladies, more and more of my lady friends are drinking neat booze. And I love that shit. You know, I really do. And I am not going to be the person to be like, oh, try my vermouth in your bourbon. That's already so fucking perfect. You know, it, I'm completely the opposite of that. Like, I, I love celebrating things that are super delicious that don't need augmentation. That being said, when you see the vermouth go out into the world, is it a very different expression for you when it's blended or not? Because I feel like you could very easily have it by itself, mm -hmm. unlike a lot of vermouths, and you could have it in a drink. And do you see it really radically different? And do you make it with the idea that this is going to be blended perhaps this way or that way? No way. I mean, yeah. I definitely don't make it with the intent of it being fated as a modifier. But at the same time, you know, you can't sell your house to somebody and tell the people like what colors to paint the walls. And I truly feel that I would never want to hold anybody back creatively. And I would never let anybody do that to me. And so I think that, you know, once that's in your hands, and you're the one making the drink that that becomes your creative ingredient. My intentions don't really matter at that point. The only thing that I like beg and plead of this world is please anything under 25% alcohol. Once you open it, just keep that shit in the fridge. That is all I ask of people to do. I even say, please refrigerate very polite for me on the back of my bottles because I really just hope that people treat it, you know, like wine and respect the fact that in order for it to live a little longer, ha you know, have life for longer, that it needs to go in your refrigerator. Industry-wide, it's really cool seeing people give a shit. 
I'm still in shock anytime anybody gives a shit or sends me an email from some awesome restaurant that, you know, like makes me immediately like jizz in my own pants. Like that's like, you know, super awesome seeing people get involved. It's most important to teach people that it's okay, that it's socially acceptable to drink your vermouth on its own because when you can tell somebody that they can just have it as is and you give them the creative freedom of how best they would like to enjoy it, you know, rather than being like, oh, you know, this is this like margarita mix that's got to go in your tequila or whatever, I feel like you're allowing people to kind of approach it as its own thing and then, and then take it themselves from there. Do you still have to explain the product a lot? Yeah. And I mean, for the most part, nobody ever believes me that vermouth is wine. You know, the first question is always like, what the fuck is vermouth? You know, actually, the first thing that everybody says is, ew, vermouth. And then they keep walking. And then I ask them to please come back and taste some. And, you know, the first question is always, you know, what is vermouth? And I say, you know, it's aromatized fortified wine, which means edible plants, Mixed with wine and fortification refers to driving up the alcohol percentage, uh, generally with a fruit spirit, you know, so that it strengthens the wine is basically the gist of it. And they swear to me up and down that it's either one of two things. Either it's a hard liquor and they can't possibly drink it straight because they're not going to be able to drive home after that, you know, this one little sip or that it's an herbal liqueur and that it must be sweet. And even though I tell them like, no, 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 I really don't use any sweeteners like at all. Even like friends of mine, you know, I I went to Portland recently and a friend of mine who's a sommelier like was tasting my wildflower vermouth and he's like, oh, but you use unfortified grape juice to sweeten this, right? And I'm like, no, I don't fucking use anything. Like there's no sweetener in there. It's just wine and plants and brain. And that's it. And uh, and so people are often in great disbelief. They assume that either it's some weird um, laboratory project going on or that it's just like straight booze. If I were you thinking about it and there were so many sweet liqueurs out there, which there seemed to be, it would actually push me drier, which is seemingly what happened, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that people are either disappointed because it really isn't sweet or they are seriously refreshed Um, You know, because they have just been jaded by, like, every syrupy product out there. And at the same time, I feel like there's been such a push towards big impact alcohol, higher proof alcohol. Sure. That's either paraded or not, but is apparent when you drink the beverage. You're Mm -hmm. like, wow, I just got knocked over. That it must be kind of interesting when you see end consumers who are maybe waiting to get their hair blown back by a beverage, but then it doesn't happen. So how do they respond? A lot of people just respond with a phrase to the extent of like, oh, huh, not at all what I was expecting. Not bad, actually. And it's like, yeah, thanks. (laughs) Thanks a lot. That took 17 weeks of my life. Do you know how many thistles are on a cardoon? (laughs) That shit is rough. They're like, oh, but you didn't make it. Oh, yeah. Oh, even better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. I mean, so it's like stereotype after stereotype of the alcohol industry. Honey, are you even old enough to drink? Right. Can you even legally have this job or did you have to lie to get into the army? Right. Do people ask you that? Like, oh my gosh, people all the time, all the time people are asking me if I lie, if I lie about my age, who I actually work for and who actually makes it. I think that would, um, I would get upset about that. It would be hard for me to take it the thousandth time of someone questioning my thing. Okay, like, there lightly. is o- there is only one time I ever told somebody at a tasting to go fuck herself. 
you know, which was bound to happen. Let's face it. You know, I, I, it is foul mouth farm. I have a fuse. It's down here somewhere. I try to keep it really, really buried and away from anything flammable, but you know, it, it definitely goes off every once in a while and it's in my own scary way because I'm not actually a yeller. And so like, I'll say shit to you, but nobody else can fucking hear me. And it's super rude, you know? And, and so the only time that that ever happened was at a slow food fundraiser. And this woman who I watched her go from table to table and take like one tiny sip and then like leave her glass in the middle of somebody's, you know, service station as though like they were, you know, your personal like janitor for the evening, busboy for for the evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just just like entitlement, like to a degree that I personally have just never been able to put up with, um, seek and destroy. And so she finally gets to me. And she tastes it and she goes, hmm, what is this? And I was like, it's beet vermouth. And she rolled her eyes at me and pushed the glass in front of me. And I leaned over to her ear and I go, go fuck yourself, old lady. (laughs) Like, so not at all an effective insult even. It was just like heat of the moment. Like, couldn't take it anymore, but had nothing prepared. And so, like, I had like a creepy whisper, you know, Instead of whispering sweet nothings, I whispered a very creepy something. <laughs> come here, I want to tell you something. Yeah, come here, come here, go fuck yourself. <laughs> so do you guys still see each other now and again? Yeah, we have coffee every Tuesday. <laughs> 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 she actually had no other family, so she's leaving everything to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, maybe she's a new investor. Yeah. <laughs> well, it takes all kinds, doesn't it? <laughs> so now you're doing the Amaro thing too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bianca Amaro. Oh, is that, that's it's a good the most narcissistic yeah, yeah. name ever because it's a white no, wine-based. that's good, though. I like it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but that seems drawn over more time. And so is it different oh, yeah. for you to really watch something over a longer period like that? Oh, it's the most giant waste of money you could ever imagine. I mean, I absolutely understand why every single person I know who makes something that they age has real investment money. That shit is no joke. Barrels alone. You know, and I'm using like the, you know, the leftover crap (laughs) and it's, you know, it's still like it drives the cost of everything up no matter what. And then the more time you're sitting on it, the more the cost goes up of making it. And generally speaking, I didn't really like get into the seasonal business to sit on inventory. So that's been a really tough adjustment for me. Right. It kind of changes the business model as well as the taste. Yeah, but it's nothing compared to the open air vinegary that I'm starting that's going to take like 10 to 15 years for it to be really like bottleable and uh, and ready to be out in the world. So, you know, I'm just kind of trying to look forward to my 50s or whatever. What's it like dealing with fortification in general? Like, do you have to make things more flavorful because you know you're going to be basically diluting them with fortification or... I don't think I'm diluting them. I mean, you know, fortification isn't a huge volume of your batch because, first of all, it's very high proof uh, alcohol. So the amount that you're raising the overall alcohol of the vermouth, you know, you you don't want it to be super high. And that can happen very easily with high proof alcohols. I think that it truly improves the aroma of the vermouth overall, as does uh, using mugwort as an herbal base for everything. Oh, yeah, that's right. You do that. Yep. Yeah. 
Have you found that to catch on more broadly at all or no? Nobody gives a shit. You yeah. know, the the Wormwood argument, I first of all, the, the Euro laws cite Artemisia vulgaris, which is mugwort, not Wormwood. And I'm not saying that to be like, I'm the motherfucking OG of vermouth right here. I'm saying it because that's just how silly it is that there really was never, you know, this insanity with Wormwood having to be the main herbal base. You know, it was actually legally speaking declared as mugwort. Um, so that's point A. But furthermore, it it was the rise of the vermouth boom, you know, a few years ago when, you know, when I first came out, Atsby vermouth came out at the same time in New York, a tiny bit before me. And then, you know, there were only three other vermouth companies in the US at that time. And then, you know, now we have probably like, I don't know, 15, 20, I don't even know anymore. It's a lot, you know, it's cool. But I think that it was an argument when there were very, very few of us to defend and now that we know more about what actually happened historically, uh, you know, because keep in mind you're talking about something that's 4,000 years old, it has become like just less and less of an issue for people. And and the only other person I know who's using, you know, Wormwood is Todd from Ransom in Oregon. I mean, there are 400 different species of plants like within the genus of Artemisiae, but it's... For that matter, you can count tarragon, you know, if you want. So the issue is, is that everybody's like, oh, you know, wermut is the German word for wormwood, but it's not. It's the Germanic word for artemisia. And back then, they didn't necessarily know the difference between something like uh, mugwort and wormwood and the 400 other species that came to be in that genus. I think that it's an etymological issue more than anything else. And are there other examples of that? Like, are there examples where Vermouth's understanding has changed through time because maybe it was more localized and then it became more global and then now it's more localized again or because it had magical or religious inferences before? Are there things that we have a hard time understanding about Vermouth because the context has changed? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, a big thing with Americans and Vermouth, you know, is prohibition. Before prohibition, uh, New York was the number one vermouth-producing state in the country. It was also the number one hops-growing state in the country, uh, which is crazy because, you know, I can name like five hops farms in New York, and I work with one of them, and it's and it's one acre big. So, you know, a, a lot of people decided to plant other stuff um, during Prohibition, of course, because they had to. And... I think that there was a major disconnect. It's the same disconnect, you know, as people starting to eat TV dinners. Does that make sense? Uh-huh, 100%. Yeah, it's the same exact thing. It's that whole era, things are coming back into fashion, but there's war and there's family values and there's, you know, dad drinking whiskey when he gets home kind of thing. And, you know, I, I just think that all of that culture is colliding. And I, I think that, you know, people became more and more comfortable with eating and drinking junk. And I always say that anything that you drink is a food, that what goes in your glass is absolutely just as important as what's on your plate. And, you know, even medicine for that matter, anything that you're putting into your body is a food. And you should question, you know, where it came from, at the very least. What other projects are you starting up that maybe aren't vermouth projects? I started a second company last year. And it's called Sensitive Cleaners. And that is a name by my business partner, James Case. And we 
We're experiencing uh, something interesting last year around the same time. He is the manager of Covenhoven, which is a really awesome, nerdy fucking beer bar in Crown Heights. And he is somebody I consider to have wonderful taste in beer and gives a shit to a degree that I wish everybody did. And he and I were discussing an issue because I had tried out, you know, kegging a vermouth for somebody. And the customer called me and said, something is wrong with your vermouth. You need to come and pick it up, right? <laughs> like, of course, you know, my, fa- my favorite phone call. And I was like, well, did you hook it up to a beer line? You know, like, I think you probably just need to have your line cleaned because the vermouth is in an airtight keg, you know, a pressurized airtight keg, like it tastes the same. It did, you know, the day that I kegged it, it's fine, I promise. And, you know, so he ended up having somebody come in and clean the lines and he called me back and he's like, no, it's the vermouth, something is wrong. And so I went over one afternoon and took my entire afternoon and, you know, was trying to figure out what the hell was going on with my vermouth. And and quite honestly, I was really upset about it because, You know, when I had tasted it before it got kegged, I was excited about the first kegging. You know, it was delicious. And and so, you know, I found that the cleaner that was used to clean the beer line that the vermouth keg was hooked into was unsaponified sodium hydroxide. So in super simple terms, it means that it's lye that hasn't been combined with either a, you know, vegetable or meat fat, some, you know, some sort of oil that's going to balance out the pH level so that it's safe to touch our skin, for instance. Really, really bad shit. So I make my own soap and of course, (laughs) and I, you know, experienced firsthand what happens when you touch lye that hasn't been saponified, I, you know, got a really, really terrible burn. And I was like, holy shit, that, you know, that's fucked up. That stuff is no joke. And so when I found out that that's what the line was being cleaned with, I was first of all, like, fearful for the health of anybody who is drinking out of this line and very afraid, you know, because it's like, holy shit, what if there's like a lawsuit and people are like, oh, it's your vermouth and it's not because the poison is in the beer line. And so anyway, I left and I said, I'll be back in 20 minutes. And I went out to, you know, the grocery nearest grocery store and I and I assembled some very basic uh, but safely ingestible cleaning agents and went back and made my own cleaning solution and flushed out the line and dropped the microphone and left. The vermouth was fine. Everything was fine. Everybody was happy. It was clean. And I was talking to James about it. And he said, well, you know, nobody is doing a good job. Everybody's using caustic. And, you know, we need to do better. So we started consulting with our friend, Ben Granger, who's a mechanical genius and exists in the beer world as a uh, draft line, you know, artist, I guess is the best way to put it. He's the one. He's doing amazing work and was nice enough to help us put together a system. And I created a cleaning formula. And the irony is what you're fighting when you clean beer lines is calcified oxalic acid, which is a calcified version of what's in rhubarb leaves that I was saying before that's really bad for you. And so this stuff, when it gets into your body, 
you know, can burn holes in your stomach lining. It's really severely poisonous, um, you know, and can rip your body apart for that matter and burns all the way down. And so does caustic. And uh, the weird thing is that the number one cause of calcified oxalic acid, commonly known as beer stone, is caustic. So these caustic cleaners that everybody is using is actually creating the problem and creating a very, very unhealthy beer line, you know, for everybody involved. And furthermore, it's an insult to not only the consumer who's who's ingesting this, you know, horrible poison, but it's also an insult to the brewer, you know, who is taking such great care in keeping her brewery clean and putting these beautiful beers out into the world that are going to be like heinously misrepresented. So we figured out a way to create a backpack system. So dues, you know, our technicians can ride the subway, they can do a faster job, a cleaner job, an actual clean, healthy job. And, uh, you know, and, and we're not charging, you know, more than everybody else. So I'm very proud of it. We're getting ready to launch and our system is amazing. I'm, I'm so, so excited. Sensitive cleaners. <laughs> so the thing is that like when people clean beer lines, it's can be toxic actually. Mm-hmm. And, but right. a lot of times when you're drinking a beer, a lot of times when something seems wrong, you're like, ah, oh, maybe they didn't clean the lines. And that's just as bad. So that's the problem is that, you know, when you're creating all of this time in between cleanings, that's how the beer stone is building up. And then when you're finally going in and cleaning with caustic, you're just reinforcing that beer stone. And if it is releasing it, then you're talking about some really serious shit, you know, like when you're breaking apart those molecules and there's more of a chance of people ingesting them, you know, then you're talking about high risk situations. You know, it's a real thing. And so even just speaking as advising somebody, you know, legally, it's better to go with a system that you know isn't going to end up poisoning people and is going to actually take everything, you know, poisonous that's alcohol soluble and make sure that it's flushed out before that next beer is poured. And that is absolutely our mission. And why do you think caustic became popular? It's cheap. Yeah. It's cheap, and there are a lot of companies manufacturing it. I mean, I don't know if you know how lye is made, but it's made a lot of different ways. You can even just make it from wood ash. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, I mean, it's an easy thing to produce, like, a fuck ton of it. It's very, very easy. So is the cost differential between what you're going to do and that older process that's based around something that's cheap, is that a big cost differential? It is, and it's the same approach as the vermouth I'm absorbing the cost difference so that it doesn't change for my customers so that, you know, they're more willing to do the right thing, you know, in this respect, because unlike the Vermouth Project, which is purely a pleasure project, you know, and I can't legally claim that vermouth is medicinal, um, I think that this project, Sensitive Cleaners, is all about public health. So you're saying it's just something that's not really cared for in the society? I think it's grossly overlooked and neglected. Yeah, I do. And I think that that's worldwide. There's really an unlimited uh, market to be tapped into. And oh, I like that joke. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's, we'll wait and see, but I really have big ideas for this company. I, I think that it's so important and it's so ideal to have it replicated in every corner of the world that has the service industry. Bianca Morelia has big ideas and local ideas, and if you don't like them, she might whisper that you can go fuck yourself in your <laughs> ear. Thank you very much for being here tonight. Thanks, Levy. Bianca Morelia of Uncouth Vermouth and also Sensitive Cleaners. 
All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.